Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. Early in the course, we spent some time studying Jesus Christ and his workings with Adam and Eve, as well as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We explored Christ and the Law of Moses and his interactions with prophets like Isaiah and Hosea. For the past several classes, we've been focused on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today, we'll explore the Savior's role in the book of Acts. To begin, I have a very simple question for you. Which of the following individuals is mentioned most frequently in Acts? Is it Jesus or Lord, Paul, the Spirit or Holy Ghost, or Peter? When I asked some of my students this question, a majority voted for the Holy Ghost. I said, I must not be a very good teacher because I haven't taught you that Jesus is always the right answer. In fact, in Acts, Jesus Christ is mentioned more than the Spirit, Paul, or Peter. We see his centrality in other ways as well. The first verse in Acts says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The last verse says, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. From the beginning to the end, Acts is about Jesus. He is the main character. As we study Acts together, we're going to focus on some Christ-centered patterns. I think there's power in seeing scriptural patterns. Consider what Elder David A. Bednar taught. Searching in the revelations for connections, patterns, and themes builds upon and adds to our spiritual knowledge. This approach can open the floodgates of the spiritual reservoir enlighten our understanding through His Spirit, and produce a degree of spiritual commitment that can be received in no other way. One approach to finding patterns is to identify how key words or phrases are repeated. Notice this Christ-centered pattern in Acts. They cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Philip preached unto him Jesus. Early Christians were preaching the Lord Jesus. Paul preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos mightily convinced the Jews, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Seeing this pattern reminds me that in my gospel teaching, both at home and at church, I need to focus on the Savior. Chad Webb, the administrator of the Seminaries and Institute program, wrote, The single most important way in which we can help increase faith in the rising generation is to more fully place Jesus Christ at the center of our teaching and learning by helping our students come to know Him, to learn from Him, and to consciously strive to become like Him. There is nothing we can do that will bless our students more than to help them come to know Jesus Christ. We must help them to love Him, follow Him, and intentionally strive to become like Him. I want to highlight for a moment what this focus on Jesus Christ tells us about His earliest disciples. Within a period of weeks, Peter went from publicly denying Christ to publicly testifying of Him. I wouldn't base my testimony on this, but this is a small piece of evidence that shows that the resurrection really happened. If it didn't, how would there be such a great change in the apostles? At the beginning of Acts, we learn that Jesus Christ showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days. These early disciples knew the Savior, and that's demonstrated by another interesting pattern that appears in several sermons in Acts. In each of these discourses, there's a focus on Jesus. Christ was crucified. God has resurrected Christ. The scriptures foretold these things. The name of Jesus Christ is important, and we are all witnesses of Jesus Christ. Because of all these things, we need to repent. 
This pattern on the screen is color-coded so that as we look at a few examples, you can see it more easily. Here's one sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, ye have crucified, whom God hath raised up. David speaketh concerning the resurrection of Christ. Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let's look at a second sermon. The God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and killed the Prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name hath made this man who had been crippled strong. God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer. Repent ye therefore, and be converted. Let's do one more sermon. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, doth this man stand. This is the stone which has become the head of the corner. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Ghost. Are you seeing this pattern? What relevance might this have for us in our lives today? Here's one application a recently returned missionary shared with me. She said, When I was on my mission, there were lots of times I was so excited to teach about the temples or the restoration, and sometimes I had a hard time mentioning Jesus Christ in those lessons. One time my mission president told the mission, We need to focus on Jesus Christ more. And I thought, What are you talking about? We talk about him all the time. His name is on our chest. But then I realized that there were lessons when I wouldn't even mention his name. An important message from Acts is that Everything connects to Christ. All the great things we have in the restored gospel are because of Jesus Christ. Whether we are full-time or member missionaries, we need to talk more about the Savior. Another possible application is found in the story about a guy who digs a trap for a monkey. The man you see on the screen is digging a hole in the side of a hill. Once he gets the hole just right, he drops in some melon seeds that he knows the monkey loves. He's pretty strategic in how he does this, and he waits to dig the hole until he knows the monkey is watching him. The monkey pretends like he doesn't care, but the man knows that monkeys are very curious creatures. He's confident that if he waits long enough that the monkey is going to come and see what's in the hole. That's exactly what happens. The monkey comes, checks it out, and reaches in his hand to grab the seeds. Notice that he could fit his hand in, but once he grabs the seeds, he's not able to get his hand out. Why? Because he's holding on to the seeds. Is the monkey really trapped? All he has to do is let go. Will the monkey escape? Sadly, the monkey does not let go and he is captured. Thinking about this story in connection with Christ's centrality in the book of Acts makes me think about my own life. I have a lot of things I'm grabbing onto, some of which distract me from making Jesus the center of my life. Is Jesus central in my life or are there things I need to let go of in order to focus more on Jesus? Another possible application comes from a talk given by Thomas Griffith at a BYU devotional several years ago. He shared his experience as a newly called stake president, feeling like his stake needed to focus more on Jesus Christ and his atonement in their church meetings. Think about his quote in terms of how it might apply to you in your family, church, and other responsibilities. Elder Packer said, The atonement of Christ is the very root of Christian doctrine. You may know much about the gospel as it branches out from there, but if you only know the branches, and those branches do not touch that root, if they have been cut free from that truth, there will be no life, nor substance, nor redemption in them. 
As a newly called stake presidency, we laid down a rule that every sacrament meeting talk, every lesson in Sunday school, relief society, and priesthood meetings must be related to the atonement of Jesus Christ in a direct and express way. We told the bishops that if they wanted to have a sacrament meeting around the principles of emergency preparedness, important principles to be sure, that meeting would be about emergency preparedness and the atonement of Christ. If you cannot figure out the link between the topic you are to teach and the atonement of Jesus Christ, you have either not thought about it enough or you shouldn't be talking about it at church. Your topic may be fine for the city council, your neighborhood organization, or the commercial break during sports center, but in our limited time in church, we must be talking about the atonement of Christ. Thus far, we've seen a pattern in the book of Acts of Christ being presented as the main character and the focus of early Christian teaching. Let's now look at a series of additional Christ-centered patterns in the early church. The first has to do with Christ sending the Holy Ghost. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, When the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Then, in the book of Acts, Jesus is with the disciples for forty days after the resurrection and says to them, Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Sometimes we lose track of the timing in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we learn that Christ is ministering to the apostles and others for forty days after his resurrection. Then we go to Acts chapter 2, and it's the day of Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So Christ is resurrected, he's with his disciples for 40 days, and then a week and a half after his ascension, it's the day of Pentecost. In other words, when we get to Acts chapter 2, it's been less than two months since Christ's resurrection. In the first verses of Acts chapter 2, we read, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Pentecost was a big festival like Passover, and Jews from many nations had gathered to Jerusalem. As the Holy Ghost comes, the disciples start speaking, and people from different nations heard the apostles speak in their native languages. It was a miracle. This is the context for Peter giving one of the sermons that we looked at earlier. From this time forward, the Holy Ghost plays a key role in the ministry. Notice this pattern. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. While Peter thought on this vision, the Spirit said unto him, The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. This is an easy pattern to apply in our lives. I can just ask myself, how much is the Holy Ghost leading my life? Am I open to receiving promptings and doing things differently because of what the Spirit says? Sometimes this is in small things, and sometimes it's in big things. Here's a small example from my life. One afternoon, about 10 years ago, my wife was helping with Cub Scouts, and I was at home with our kids. I don't know if you've ever been in charge of a lot of little kids. It can be really tough. I'm running around trying to help this person, help that person. And my seven-year-old daughter, Maria, comes up to me and says, Dad, can we make cookies? And I said, no, that is totally impossible. I went downstairs to help some of the other kids. And when I came back into the kitchen, Maria had gotten out the flour and the sugar. She was determined to make cookies on her own. And I knew that that was going to make a big mess. So I said, honey, we are not making cookies. Then I went out the front door, probably because one of my kids had just run out half naked or something. Well, as I went outside, the Spirit whispered to my heart, John, don't you live next door to your mother-in-law? 
I thought, yeah, I do live next door to my mother-in-law. I felt the spirit say, doesn't your mother-in-law usually keep pre-made cookie dough in the refrigerator? I thought, oh yeah. So I walked over to my mother-in-law's house. She wasn't home, but that didn't bother me. If you're watching this right now, you don't need to mention this to her, by the way. I went inside, looked in the fridge, and there was a brand new tub of pre-made cookie dough. So I borrowed it. As I was going back to my house, I had this other little nudge from the spirit saying, just tuck the cookie dough under your coat. So I put it under my coat and went back into the house. I found Maria and I said, what did you do after I left the house? She said, I prayed. I asked, what did you pray for? She said, I prayed that we could make cookies. And I said, the Lord has answered your prayers. That's a very simple example of feeling the Holy Ghost. And my guess is that all of us could share stories where the Spirit has helped us. Sometimes a simple prompting can lead to bigger things. As a young missionary, I was called to serve in the Colorado Denver North Mission, speaking English. At one point, I was serving in an area with lots of Spanish speakers. Honestly, the Spanish speakers were a lot nicer than the English speakers. So I asked my mission president if I could become a Spanish-speaking missionary. He said no, but I felt the Holy Ghost tell me, John, after your mission, you need to learn Spanish. I came back from my mission and started with Spanish 101. Learning Spanish opened up some amazing doors for me. Right after my wife and I were married, we moved to Tampico, Mexico for a three-month internship and really solidified our Spanish skills. Then we moved to a small farm town where there were lots of Spanish speakers. Lonnie and I were called to be ward missionaries and had some incredible experiences teaching people in Spanish. Next, we moved to Boston. I was working part-time for the seminary and institute program and was in a full-time master's program. I had committed to the seminary and institute program that when I graduated, I would go wherever they assigned me. I loved being in Boston and kind of wanted to stay there, but that winter in Boston was super cold. The snow that fell in November was still on the ground in March. I remember one very cold morning feeling like, why am I living in a place where it's so cold? And I felt a nudge from the spirit that said, you're going to go to the South and you'll speak Spanish. I had no idea what that meant. I wondered, are there a lot of Spanish speakers in the South? Well, some time passed, and I got a call from the seminary and institute program assigning me to be the institute director at a nearby university. My wife and I drove to Connecticut to look for houses, but we didn't really feel good about anything. So we came home thinking, we'll have to go back next week. The Monday after our house hunting trip, everyone who worked for the seminary and institute program got an email saying, we need a new institute director in Miami, Florida. This position requires Spanish since two of the three stakes are Spanish-speaking stakes. And I thought, Miami kind of is in the South. And the Holy Ghost said to my heart forcefully, this is your job. The email included a number you could call if you were interested in the position, so I called them. The person in charge basically said, we've already assigned you to Connecticut, so forget about it. But the impression was strong, so I called his boss and said, I really think you should consider me. I'm not sure what happened behind the scenes, but a couple of days later, I got a phone call telling me that we could have the job in Miami. Teaching Institute and working with the seminary teachers in Miami for several years was so beautiful for my family and me. We met many people who blessed our lives. I was able to teach and train in Spanish. That little prompting I had had as a missionary completely changed my life. So whether it's helping someone make cookies or making a life-changing decision, the Holy Ghost is here to guide us, just like in the book of Acts. President Russell M. Nelson taught, But in coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, and comforting and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. I plead with you to increase your spiritual capacity to receive revelation. Consider also this quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. 
He said the book of Acts, which introduces the post-resurrection portion of the New Testament, is technically called the Acts of the Apostles. Indeed, a more complete title for the book of Acts could appropriately be something like the Acts of the Resurrected Christ working through the Holy Spirit in the lives and ministries of His ordained apostles. Now, having said that, you can see why someone voted for the shorter title, but my suggested title is more accurate. Could we apply Elder Holland's suggested title to our lives? Could I say today I am living the acts of the resurrected Christ working through the Holy Spirit in my life? That's a pattern from Acts I hope we implement. Let's look at another pattern. It's interesting that of the books of the New Testament, there's no book that uses the word prayer or pray more frequently than Acts. This is a consistent theme. The apostles continued with one accord in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They continued steadfastly in prayers. We will give ourselves continually to prayer. Peter went up on the housetop to pray. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church. At the house of Mary, many were gathered together praying. What types of prayers do you think these early Christians were offering? On a scale of 1 to 10, how meaningful do you think their prayers were? On a scale of 1 to 10, how meaningful have your recent prayers been? Thinking about praying reminds me of a time I watched a teacher instruct teenagers to chant the word POTS. Once I was in a seminary classroom and I watched the teacher instruct students to chant the word POTS. They shouted, POTS, 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 POTS. Then the teacher asked, what do you do at a green light? Stop, everyone shouted. The teacher laughed and said, that's why there's so many accidents with teenage drivers. The teacher pointed out that mindlessly chanting POTS, 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 which is of course stop, spelled backwards, had primed the students to say stop, even though it was obviously the wrong answer. If the students had taken the time to think, they would have said something different. The teacher then asked, are you just chanting in your prayers or do you really stop to think about what you are saying? The teacher who had the students chant POTS, 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 later had them chant ROAST, ROAST, ROAST. After students repeated this word several times, the teacher asked, what do you put in a toaster? Some of the students quickly said toast, but many paused to think and correctly said bread. The message was clear. Take the time to stop and think about what you're saying, especially in prayer. If you or I find that our prayers aren't as powerful as they could be, what's one small change we could make to increase the meaningfulness of our prayers? I emphasize a small change based on this quote from President Henry B. Eyring. He said, My experience has taught me this about how people and organizations improve. The best place to look is for small changes we could make in things we do often. There is power in steadiness and repetition. And if we can be led by inspiration to choose the right small things to change, consistent obedience will bring great improvement. The small thing that each of us could change in our prayers is likely different for each of us. Perhaps we need to just block out time when we aren't tired. Maybe we could focus more on gratitude or praying for others. We might choose to have a special place to pray, to kneel down when we pray, or to pray vocally. Consider this parable by Stefan Tagger. It suggests one possible approach for improving our prayers. And it came to pass that a teenage girl had a very complicated problem. She wondered and stressed about it day and night, literally lost sleep over it. The girl's father was thoughtful, helpful, and kind. He had counseled and helped many people over the years find true happiness and solutions to their problems. The girl's father would occasionally ask her if she wanted to discuss something. He could tell that she wasn't feeling right. But she always said she was too tired or just didn't feel like talking. Eventually, one day, the girl decided to talk to her father. They set up a time to talk. They sat down on the couch. 
The girl said, Dear Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for everything you've given me. Please bless the food. Please help me with my problems. And she stood up and walked out before the father could say anything. Let's turn now to some stories that show a pattern of Christ directing the work of the church. Saul, also known as Paul, had been wreaking havoc by throwing Christians in prison and doing other terrible things. As he was traveling to cause more problems, he saw Jesus Christ and then lost his eyesight. His friends led Paul into the city of Damascus. That part of the story is pretty well known, but there's another character in the story. His name is Ananias, and he lived in Damascus. The Lord said to Ananias, I need you to go heal Saul, who is blind. Notice Ananias' response in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Can you see how Ananias is correcting the Lord? The Lord says, go heal Saul. And Ananias is like, well, maybe you haven't heard what's been happening, Lord. Let me just catch you up to speed. Do we ever do that in our lives? God gives us a prompting and we say, oh, well, that's a good idea, Lord, but you might not be aware of the latest details. The Lord was aware of the latest details. He tells Ananias to go, and to Ananias' credit, he did. To him, it doesn't seem like a good idea to heal a man who was hurting the church, but instead of following his own ideas, he did what the Lord told him to do. This is a pattern of Christ directing the work of his church. Another example of this pattern is found in the account of Cornelius and Peter. In Acts chapter 10, we read, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, the centurion of the band called the Italian band. I used to read that verse and picture Cornelius playing guitar as part of an Italian rock band. But that's not what this verse means. Cornelius is in the army. He's part of a military group known as the Italian cohort. He's a Gentile, but is a believer in God. As he's praying one day, an angel comes to him and says, there's a guy named Peter who's living in Joppa, and you need to reach out to him. Joppa is about 40 miles from Caesarea, where Cornelius lived. So Cornelius sent some of his servants to ask Peter to come and visit him. Meanwhile, Peter's praying on his rooftop, and he has a vision. In this vision, he sees unclean beasts coming down from heaven, and he hears a voice telling him to kill the unclean beasts and eat them. We might read this and think, well, that's kind of weird, but it was really shocking for Peter. The unclean beasts are non-kosher animals. These are beasts you're not supposed to eat according to the law of Moses. In fact, Peter says, never in my whole life have I eaten this type of food. This would be like you having a vision of cans of beer and cigarettes falling to the ground and you hear a voice saying, drink beer and smoke. Wouldn't you be shocked? You might think, I've got to stop watching those shows that are driving away the spirit from my life. You'd be astounded. Well, that's kind of what happens to Peter. He has this vision three times and hears the words, what God has cleansed, thou shalt not call common. While Peter's pondering what all this means, the spirit says to him, some people are looking for you, go with them. At the same time, Cornelius' servants are knocking on Peter's door. They explain their situation to Peter. And so the next day, Peter and the servants go to Caesarea. When Peter meets Cornelius, Cornelius explains that he has seen a vision and been told to seek for Peter. Suddenly, Peter understands what his vision meant. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, we read, Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter realizes that his vision of unclean beasts means that Gentiles who had used to be treated as outsiders were now to be brought into the fold of Christ. To us, this seems like a no-brainer, but at the time, this was a huge change. The acceptance of Gentiles into the church brought up many questions. At that time, the vast majority of Christians were Jewish. People asked, do Gentiles first need to become Jewish and then Christian, or can they jump straight from being Gentile to being a Christian? And what about some of the important Jewish laws like circumcision 
or specific laws relating to food or the Sabbath. Do Gentiles need to do those things? In Acts chapter 15, church leaders came together in Jerusalem to determine an answer to these questions. It's interesting to note that there was initial disagreement. We read some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, meaning these are Pharisees who have now joined the Church of Jesus Christ, stood up and said, it is necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. You know that Pharisees are very focused on the law, so it probably doesn't surprise you that they wanted Gentiles to obey all aspects of Jewish tradition. Then the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. He's referring now to the experience with Cornelius in the vision of the beasts. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. After some discussion, the church leaders determined that Gentiles do not need to follow all the laws of Moses. Yes, there are some basic laws they should keep, like the law of chastity and avoiding idolatry, but they didn't need to keep all the rules associated with Judaism. Again, it's hard for us to imagine how radical of a revelation this was, but it's part of a pattern of the apostles leading the church under the direction of Christ, even when it takes them into new territory. We see that same pattern in our day as modern apostles and prophets receive ongoing direction directly from Jesus Christ. In our final few minutes, I want to highlight one last pattern, a pattern of women taking important roles in church leadership. Let's look at three of these women and learn a little about their contributions. In Acts 16, we read about Paul's missionary efforts in Philippi, an important Roman colony in modern-day Greece. In verse 13, we read, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. From this description, Lydia appears to be a successful businesswoman. Did you notice it doesn't say anything about Lydia's husband? It simply says Lydia and her household. She's the boss. She's running things. After being baptized, she invites Paul and his companions to stay in her home. It seems that Lydia's home becomes a key gathering place for the church in Philippi. Let's next look at a woman named Priscilla, who is sometimes also called Prisca. In Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we learn that she and her husband Achilla lived in Corinth. Paul met them there and lived and worked with them for 18 months. We don't know all the details of what they did together, but when Paul left for Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila came with him. Paul left Ephesus, but Priscilla and Aquila stayed. A missionary named Apollos came to Ephesus and started preaching. He was a really good preacher, but he didn't have all the details right. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, we read, When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Can you see Priscilla as a leader of the church? She's not on the sidelines. She's helping to establish correct teachings. Today, we might see Priscilla and Aquila as mission leaders, helping to establish the church wherever they are. Jump over to Romans chapter 16. Here Paul is writing a letter and says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. 
Can you sense in Paul's words how much Priscilla and Aquila have done? They've risked their lives for Paul. Paul says all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to them. Verse 5 says, greet the church in their house, suggesting that Priscilla and Aquila have opened up their home and are hosting church meetings. Now, while we're in Romans 16, let's look at a woman named Phoebe. Although there are only two Bible verses that refer to her, they hint of her significant church service. Paul writes, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. She hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Can you see how Lydia, Priscilla, and Phoebe, they're not backstage players doing minor work. They are leading out to establish the church and bring it forward. As I think about how this relates to us today, I'm reminded of a talk President Nelson gave a couple of years ago. He said, 36 years ago, in 1979, President Spencer W. Kimball made a profound prophecy about the impact that covenant-keeping women would have on the future of the Lord's Church. He prophesied, much of the major growth that is coming to the church in the last days will come because many of the good women of the world will be drawn to the church in large numbers. This will happen to the degree that the women of the church reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives, and to the degree that the women of the church are seen as distinct and different in happy ways from the women of the world." Close quote. My dear sisters, you who are our vital associates during this winding up scene, the day that President Kimball foresaw is today. You are the women he foresaw. Your virtue, light, love, knowledge, courage, character, faith, and righteous lives will draw good women of the world along with their families to the church in unprecedented numbers. Today we've talked about several Christ-centered patterns from the book of Acts. I hope you've had some inspiration come to your mind and heart that you can apply these patterns in your life. As we conclude, I want to share one more story from the book of Acts. My colleague Joe Cochran recently pointed this out to me and it touched my heart and I hope it will touch yours also. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John approached the temple complex to pray. The date isn't clear, but it appears to have been relatively soon after Christ's resurrection. We read, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. We later learn that this man was more than 40 years old. The man saw Peter and John and asked for money. We read, Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. This was an amazing miracle, and as a result, people flocked to Peter and John to learn more. In fact, several thousand people believed their message. But what I want to focus on is the miracle that didn't happen. 
Note that this man had laid daily at the temple gate. Jesus had gone in and out of the temple many times. Why didn't he heal this man? Can you imagine this man paralyzed from birth, having heard of the Savior's miracles? Could this man have watched Jesus enter and exit the temple and wondered if Christ would come and see him? Did he ever lose hope when Christ didn't heal him? With hindsight, we can see the Savior's wisdom in not healing the man. Delaying the healing brought miraculous church growth. This is a powerful message for you and me when we feel left behind. Is there a miracle in your life that is not happening? Don't lose hope. There may be a bigger plan than you can see right now. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.